Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. We've been on the theme, learning to pray like Jesus. You'll not find much about the prayer life of Jesus in James, chapter 5. But I do think there's a connection here. James, after all, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. No doubt his prayer life was inspired by the prayer life of his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we read beginning in James 5 and the 13th verse. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. If he've committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So we open this evening to a familiar passage. We come to discover that James, the half-brother of the Savior, the author of this book that bears his name, was often called by the people during his times, Old Camel Knees. He was called Old Camel Knees because of his habit of praying much. He was so revered, so respected, the church historians tell us, that while other Christians were forbidden to come into the temple, James was permitted to come into the temple because his character was respected. And in fact, knowing that that was given to him as a privilege, he found himself often in constant prayer in the temple, so much so that his knees became calloused. His last day would be spent in the temple, the church history books tell us, that he was taken and beaten and cast off from a high place in the temple. And while he was cast down and was older in years, he did not die until the people who had cast him down came and beat him to death there on the temple courts. As we open our Bibles to the book of James, we discover that James is challenging every believer to make prayer a priority. He made prayer a priority in his life, and he gives us that same challenge. In James 1, verses 6 and 7, we are, at, we are told to ask in faith, nothing wavering. In James 4 and verse 2, we're told that we have not because we ask not. And in James 5 and verse 16, we're given the promise that we read tonight that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Back in 1991, David Barton wrote a book under the title, America, To Pray or Not to Pray. David Barton, in writing that book, wanted to chronicle what had happened in America, in its schools, since prayer was outlawed. Prayer was outlawed in our public schools in 1962 in a Supreme Court case. And he notes in the book that since prayer had been outlawed in the public schools, SAT scores had dropped dramatically, 
promiscuity had increased precipitously, and he continues to note that violent crime was up, and those things haven't changed. But what's interesting about that book is to see how rapidly those various matters seem to go up or down based on when prayer, Bible reading, the ability to share one's faith in the schools was taken out. That's sad. But you know what's sadder? It's sadder to realize that prayer is often overlooked in the homes of Christians. And prayer is often overlooked even in churches that gather together. Letter Ravenhill writes on revival and he writes on prayer. And Ravenhill says, No man is greater than his prayer life. Poverty stricken as the church is today, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. Failing here, we fail everywhere. As we open to James chapter 5 this evening, we discover beginning in verse 13 down through verse 18 that prayer is mentioned seven times by James because James simply wants every believer to make it a priority to pray. We need to make prayer priority number one. And so there is in this text an exhortation to pray. James is a very forceful writer. He must have been a dynamic preacher. This pastor of the church in Jerusalem who stands to give his thoughts at the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, who is well known by all the apostles, this man whom the apostle Paul would one day visit. James uses the imperative 54 times in the book of James. He's not shy about allowing the Spirit of God to, through him, provide commandment. And when we come to James chapter 5, the exhortation to pray is very clear. In verse 13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. In verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call upon the elders and let them pray. In verse 16, pray one for another. And so he starts in verse 13 with a personal imperative. Let him pray. And he moves from the personal imperative to a collective imperative. Let them, speaking of the elders, pray. And then in verse 16, an intercessional imperative, praying one for another. Friends, if there was no other passage in all of the Bible on the topic of prayer that ought to motivate us to pray, we ought to at least be motivated by this passage. We are being commanded to be people of prayer. When little babies come into our homes, we expect that they will cry. I always get a kick out of the 127th Psalm, which tells us that children are the heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. In that very same context, it says, he gives his beloved sleep. That's a funny context. How sleep goes along with the gift of children, I don't know. We expect that children will cry and we expect that there will be disruptions in their daily patterns. Even so, when a person comes to know Jesus Christ as Savior, it's an automatic spiritual reflex. We pray. When the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 came to know the Lord, you remember how there was an assignment given for Ananias to go and find him there on the street called Straight. And remember how he was described? The Spirit of God tells the assigned 
ambassador, how he would know who Paul was. Remember how he would recognize him? It says, behold, he prayeth. This rabbi who had persecuted the church, who had met the Lord, had that same reflex response that all of us have when we first come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. There's that urgent desire to communicate with the Lord in prayer. Somehow, as we go along in life, we tend to think that we have enough strength to get by on our own. And so over and again, the Bible exhorts us, challenges us, commands us to pray. Jesus said in Luke 18 and verse 1, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Ephesians 6 says in verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Colossians 4 and verse 2, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Pray without ceasing. So we can say this, since we're commanded to pray, and since prayer is the obligation of every believer, failure therefore to pray is sin. We're told in Hebrews 4 and verse 6 to come boldly before the throne of grace. We're told in Jeremiah 33 and verse 3 that we can call upon him and he will answer us and show us great and mighty things that we know not. We're told in John 15 and verse 5 that without him we can do nothing. James says in James 4 and verse 2, you have not because you ask not. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation in many ways, a man whose life had often been threatened, a man whose ministry literally would change the world, Luther said, work, work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I will spend the first three hours in prayer. Can I give you an assignment? Let's do this just for a moment and make you feel better anyway. If you believe in prayer, if you believe that God answers prayer, if you believe in the power of prayer, if you say, yes, I affirm that prayer is real and God answers prayer, we serve a prayer answering God. Will you stand? Will you stand? Now, you're allowed to be a doubter, but I knew we'd have a vast response, I'm sure a near-majority response. So let's ask this question while we're standing. So you believe in the power of prayer. Do you pray? If you were to give account for your prayer life tonight, would you be content with what you're seeing and how you're behaving? Thank you, you can be seated. We say we believe in prayer. It's a challenging and convictional question. This passage says, let him pray and let them pray and pray for one another. The exhortation that's given in this passage is compelling. There are three circumstances that are found here that require believers to pray. What are those circumstances? Well, we should pray when we're suffering. He says in verse 13, is any among you afflicted, afflicted or suffering? It's the same word that's used there in chapter 5 and verse 10 when he says, take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction. Are you suffering affliction? 
It almost seems a natural thing to pray when we're suffering. And the psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 71 that he'd figured out that it was good for him, that he'd been afflicted, that he might learn God's ways. We should pray when we're suffering. We should pray when we're sick. When we're sick. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Ron Comfort said something that really snagged in my mind a number of years ago when he was here preaching. We were in the men's prayer hour. And of course, we were listing the various ones who were sick and needed our prayers. And he said, it just seems like sometimes we spend more time praying to keep people out of heaven than praying to get people in, implying that maybe we shouldn't spend as much time praying for the sick. I, I, was, I wrestled with that, I've got to tell you, until I read this verse. This verse gives warrant for praying for those who are sick. In fact, it challenges not only the person who would naturally be praying, but also the elders of the church to pray for that person. You know, we're living in a time right now where I'm sure people aren't thinking it through, but there are some who are saying, you know, COVID comes, if God wants to take me home, you know, that's better. Time out. That may sound brave. It's really not that spiritual, okay? It may sound brave, but it's really not that spiritual. Why not? Because Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul answered that a long time ago. He said, I'm in a strait between two. I have a desire to part with and be with God, which is far better. But nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is needful for you. So when you say, you know, it's okay. I mean, if the Lord's timing's in it, you know, okay, I'm ready. You've forgotten your responsibility. It's not about you. Yeah, heaven's great. Can't wait. But until then, it's not about me. God's given us a responsibility. And so praying for healing and praying for the healing of others, that's a good thing. All right? This passage demonstrates that. Is any sick among you? He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Now, this passage, of course, opens a Pandora's box of all kinds of questions and discussions, right? Well, what do we have here? First, let me start by saying, we live in a time where medical confidentiality is important. You can't get on an elevator in any hospital without seeing a code of confidentiality. You can't go into a room, and especially those who are here this evening who are, are medical professionals, you're all well-trained with regard to medical confidentiality. Medical confidentiality is not always regarded in the church, and it shouldn't be. We're not medical professionals. We're a family, okay? So sometimes people will come to church and go, I don't know if I should tell because this, this guy's got appendicitis, and would I be violating some kind of medical code? To, it's okay. You can tell us when people have appendicitis, and it's okay for us to be able to prevail specifically in prayer, can I get an amen on that? Is anybody awake here this evening? You know, you know where I'm at? Okay, you know where I'm at? Okay, so be careful. Sometimes in this confidentiality world, we bring that into the church, and then we don't need to. So in the church, if somebody wants to tell us what they're going through, or if they... Now, some people are more private, and we want to respect that. If they say, I'd prefer that people not know. And I learned a long time ago, when I go on a visit, I never ask a person what the operation was about, Okay. That, if they want to share it, that's okay, but I'm not asking, all right? But if somebody says, yeah, Pastor Phelps, that'd be great. Uh, being transparent, sometimes even in the church office where we wrestle with, I don't know if they want us to, 
well, this is a church family, and if we blow it on the side of transparency, I'd rather blow it on the side of transparency than blow it on the side of confidentiality because we're a church family. But in this text, that's not really the, the matter that's being dealt with. He's dealing with elders of the church being called because somebody is sick. Now, the word elder in the New Testament is one of three descriptors of the pastoral office. The pastor in the New Testament is called pastor, elder, or bishop. All three are used interchangeably. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is going to write and he's going to say, unto the elders I write, who am also an elder, feed the flock, that's the idea of pastor, taking the oversight, that's the word bishop. So the words are used interchangeably. If a man desires the office of a bishop, 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, he desires a good work. So the bishop is the formal title, if you will, for the office. And the word bishop, episkopos, means an overseer, a manager. The word pastor is one that we prefer to use, and I certainly prefer to use it. I remember years ago going up to an esteemed professor who for 30 plus years had been a seminary professor, a brilliant man, phenomenal linguist. And he took his first pastorate in his 50s. And he came in on a Monday morning and I said to him, well, Pastor Northrup, he's with the Lord today. How's it feel to be a pastor? And tears welled up in his eyes. And he said, that's a marvelous title. I've always been Dr. Northrup and yesterday they called me Pastor Northrup. The word pastor speaks of a shepherd, so it speaks of being close to the sheep, to the flock. And the word elder, presbuteros, speaks of one who is an example. Literally, it means bearded one. But it speaks of those who are examples within the flock. So he uses this passage to speak of those who are elders in the church, who have a ministry to those who are sick. And I want you to notice a couple things here, because we live in an age that has a whole lot of confusion when it comes to faith healers and faith healing, right? If you recognize this person on here, shame on you. Okay? It's not Oral Roberts. Oh, thank you, Tom. <laughs> Wouldn't you know, Tom recognized him right away. I was telling somebody about Oral Roberts today. I think my mind was on faith healers in preparation for this. How that Oral Roberts once tried to get into the record industry with uh, recordings, but it, it didn't work for him because the hole kept healing over. And you'll, you'll, you'll understand that. He's with the Lord now, so you can't laugh about these things. Actually, there were tragedies that happened in his life. One time he broke his leg. He was walking his duck on the lake, and a speedboat hit him, and uh, that was tough. Is there any sick among you? And I'll stop while I'm ahead. Let him call for the elders of the church. I want you to notice something here. It's really important. He says, call for the elders of the church. He doesn't say call for the faith healers, right? There's no New Testament office of faith healer. That's really important. There's no New Testament office of faith healer. He's to call for the elders of the church. And by the way, it seems that the person who's sick is calling the elders to their home, not to some hall or assembly place where people have gathered in anticipation of being healed. This is a really interesting passage. As you look at it, it's a local church context. It's not a big stage. It's not an international assembly for the propagation of faith healing. 
Is this somebody who's sick, who knows well enough, these that are close by, who are elders of the church? And they're to anoint with oil. If you look at most modern faith healing assemblies and gatherings, they fall on the floor a lot, but it's not because there's oil that's been spilled there. I've never seen oil at a faith healing thing. Um, Usually they're getting pounded to the floor. But what's the oil all about? Well, in Psalm 23, the good shepherd anoints the sheep with oil. Anointeth my head with oil. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus speaks of the good Samaritan putting oil in the wounds of the man who's been beaten. Oil was often used in the time that James writes for its medicinal value. And so there does seem to be at least some measure of a medicinal instruction that's going on here. And that's not unusual in the New Testament, right? Can anybody tell me any other common commodity that was recommended in the New Testament for its medicinal value? Oh, yeah. So Paul wrote to Timothy and said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. And he assumed that Timothy would figure that out and understand what he meant. I think there's some of that going on here in James, that when we talk about the oil that's being used here, uh, I don't think it's symbolic. I, I think that there may be some medicinal value. And then there's something else that we often miss in this context. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. Whose prayer? Who did the praying? The elders did. You know, faith healers get off on a lot this, these days. They'll say, well, you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. So if the faith healer seems to be without power, it's your fault. This text says it's the elders who are praying. And the elders' prayer of faith will save the sick. But there's something else we often miss in this context. The Lord shall raise him up. If he hath committed sin, it will be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. So the healing context continues down into verse 16. But in the middle of this healing context, there's a thought that we could put this way. There may be chastening in mind. The person who's calling for the elders of the church may indeed be ill or sick because of sin. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? He says, it's reported commonly among you that there's fornication and such is not even named among the Gentiles that a man would have his own father's wife. And then he compares this allowance of this individual who's living in such shameful sin to leaven. And remember how he counsels the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Remove therefore that leaven. And in the midst of that counsel, he says, you need to remove that one and put him out for the buffeting of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. So what's the context of 1 Corinthians 5? Church discipline. And what does church discipline bring? Or what does it promise? 1 Corinthians 5, it promises the buffeting of the flesh. It promises physical adversity. Not pointless, purposeless physical adversity. Very pointed and very purposeful. Physical adversity, the buffeting of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. Have you ever tied 1 Corinthians 5 together with James chapter 5? It's an interesting thing to tie together. 1 Corinthians 5, sin that requires church discipline, promises the buffeting of the flesh. Physical challenge. And by the way, I've seen that happen. 
I remember the very first time I was involved with church discipline, a man had left his wife to go live with someone else. And after a once and twice admonishment and after a careful letter had been received, the individual who was living with someone else, having left his wife, was brought before the church for church discipline. Within weeks of the church voting to put that man under church discipline, he suffered a massive coronary. And to me, it was very confirming. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives, Hebrews 12 says. So yes, there's the buffeting of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. And here in, first, in James chapter 5, something that we don't often put together may be happening. They're calling for the elders of the church and confessing their faults with a context saying that their sins can be forgiven. Now, there are other opinions on this passage. I just offered mine. And I better get off of this particular point in the passage. But we notice this. For sure, he says, when people are sick, it's, it's wise for us to pray. And when people sin, it's wise for us to pray. Confessing your faults one to another and praying for one another that you might be healed. We're to pray and we know 1 John 1.9 gives us the wonderful promise, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Here then is a passage that exhorts us over and over and over to be people of prayer. There's an exhortation here and there's an encouragement here. You see, the world thinks very little about prayer until tragedy strikes. But the believer ought to be thinking about prayer and thinking about prayer often. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 3, And whatsoever you will ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. Those are not just words on a page. That's the promise of God. And here in this passage, there's an encouragement to pray. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, verse 16, availeth much. We're encouraged to pray passionately. The effectual, fervent prayer, that comes from one word. Effectual, fervent is one word in the Greek language. You'll understand it right away when I say it. Energeo, energeo. Prayer with energy, prayer with passion. Energeo, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not just a sleepy, routine, haphazard, non-considered, no, no, a fully engaged, passionate prayer that's prayed cautiously. The example of prayer that James holds up in front of us is the example of Elijah, and he's called a righteous man, a righteous man. There is positional righteousness. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. And there's practical righteousness. If I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not, the Lord will not hear me. And so I'm encouraged to pray carefully examining my heart, asking the Lord to make me a vessel that's righteous before Him, that can come before Him with power and prayer. And when we pray, we are to pray expectantly. It avails much. Prayer makes a difference. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I'm so glad the example of prayer is Elijah. You know, you could go through the Old Testament and think of any number of people to say, Look at this one. There's an example. Moses prayed. He went into the presence of the Lord and prevailed in prayer for the needs of God's people. He held his arms up to pray until they were tired and needed to be held up by others. 
Moses was a man of prayer. He doesn't pick Moses. Daniel was a man of prayer. Three times a day, he prayed toward Jerusalem, right? To the point where he was thrown in the... He doesn't pick Daniel. He picks Elijah. (laughs) I'm really glad that he picks Elijah. Why? Because he wants us to know that when it comes to an example of prayer, anyone can pray. If Elijah can pray, you can too. You ever thought of all the dysfunctional characteristics that are found in the personality of Elijah? Elijah is an interesting Old Testament character. He suffered from depression. He cried out to God, you know, under the juniper tree, Lord, just take my life. It's, it's just, just end it, Lord, just end it. He was filled with anxiety disorder when Jezebel said she was going to have him. He went on the run. He was impetuous. He showed a whole lot of cowardice. At that. And now we, we see him up on Mount Carmel. We think, man, how can you call Elijah a coward? He ran away from Queen Jezebel, which tells me he's not always very predictable. Elijah is an interesting person, and God answered his prayer. I'm glad he chose Elijah as the example because it gives hope to me and you. If God would answer Elijah's prayer, anyone can pray. You know, I ended this outline by giving you a testimony of Adoniram Judson who said, arrange thy affairs if possible so that thou canst leisurely devote two or three hours every day, not merely to a devotional exercise, but to the very act of secret prayer and communion with God. Consider that thy time is short and all that business and company must not be allowed to rob thee of thy God. Adoniram Judson reached Burma for Christ and the testimony of Adoniram Judson is still ringing throughout Burma. Adoniram Judson was a man of prayer. But did you know that when Adoniram Judson's wife died and he found out about it, he was so distraught that he dug a grave by hers and he sat by that grave and prayed that God would just let him topple over and die. Judson had some moments like Elijah. Judson saw God answer prayer. Anyone can pray. Friend, you can pray. And Satan's the only one that's going to tell you you can't. But you can. If Elijah can pray, so can I. Anything can be requested. Anything can be requested. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. <laughs> Somebody should have prayed that this evening. But God changed the weather patterns when Elijah prayed. You know, prayer in God's Word has caused the armies of God to prevail, the sun to stand still prison doors to fly open. And even when the prison doors fly open and Peter shows up at the house, they're like, "Uh, hang on, wait here. We're inside praying for Peter. We don't expect the answers. But anything can be requested. And any time is the right time. Any time is the right time. The songwriter said, I read in the Bible the promise of God that nothing for him is too hard. Impossible things he has promised to do if we faithfully trust in his word. Nothing is impossible when we put our trust in God. There might be someone in this room this evening who's carrying an impossible burden, who's facing an impossible situation. But God can answer prayer. May God help us to be people who know the blessing of answered prayer. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. 
If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Podcast.